On this cold Saturday morning, January 28, 2023, in the, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States of America, let's take a biochemical journey into the ontology of living systems. Basically, this is what I call intellectual pastime. All life is cellular. In the cell, what is contingent and what is necessary? It's a question. What about energy-coupled redox biochemistry? Energy must be acquired, and in an aerobic organism, this is most efficiently effective via oxidative phosphorylation, something we've talked a lot about over the several semesters we've been doing authentic biochemistry. So the reducing power of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide reduced form and flavin adenine dinucleotide reduced form has generated during the oxidation of reduced carbon compounds, for example, fatty acids and carbohydrates, via dehydrogenase reactions, is ultimately used to drive electrons and protons through the chemiosmotically described electron transport chain of the inner mitochondrial membrane to ultimately produce ATP through a proton pumping ATP synthase. This is facilitated by an intramembrane lipid-based hydride carrier, for example, the ubiquinol ubiquinone cycle, and a series of progressively lower electrochemical potentials associated with either iron or copper containing proteins embedded in the coupling membrane, that iron and copper being of the correct oxidation state to facilitate this progressively lower electrochemical potential gradient. So as protons are pumped back into the mitochondrial matrix, the ATPase phosphorylates ADP and ATP is generated, and the electron motive force drives the reduction of molecular oxygen to H2O. <clears throat> now, besides covalent bond energies, of which many are involved there, obviously, we must also address the cumulative power of weak chemical forces. So what, what are these? Well, we have <clears throat> van der Waals interactions. Their strength is on the level of 0.4 to 4 kilojoule per mole. They work at distances between 0.3 and 0.6 nanometer. And the strength depends on the relative size of the atoms or molecules when they're involved, and of course, this distance between them. The size factor determines the area of contact between the two molecules. The greater that surface area, the stronger the interaction. So those are Van der Waals forces. Next, hydrogen bonds. Their strength is, more, is much more potent. That's between 12 and 30 kilojoule per mole. The distance there is exactly at 0.3 nanometer. Their relative strength is proportional to the polarity of the hydrogen bond donor and hydrogen bond acceptor. More polar atoms form stronger 
hydrogen bonds. Third, ionic interactions. Strength there, kilojoule per mole is about 20. Distance 0.25 nanometer. Strength also depends on the relative polarity of the interacting charged species. Some ionic interactions are also hydrogen bonds. Now, finally, the hydrophobic interactions. My favorite, actually. The strength there in kilojoules per mole is about 40. Okay. Distances are irrelevant here, apparently, because force is a complex phenomenon in hydrophobic interactions, determined by the degree to which the structure of water is disordered as discrete hydrophobic molecules or molecular regions aggregate and coalesce. So this is a very dynamic interaction, a hydrophobic interaction. It involves multiple physical and chemical interactions, as they all do. Now, Van der Waals forces is a general term used to define the attraction of intermolecular forces between molecules. There are two kinds of Van der Waals forces, weak London dispersion forces and that stronger dipole-dipole interaction. So the chance in an electron of an atom is in a certain area in the electron cloud at a specific time is, of course, called that electron charge density. Now, since there's no way of knowing exactly where the electron is located, exactly located, and since they do not all stay in the same area 100% of the time, if the electrons all go to the same area at once, a dipole is formed at that instance. Even if a molecule is nonpolar, you see, the displacement of electrons can cause a nonpolar molecule to become, for that moment, polar. Okay? See all the dynamic events here. Now, since the molecule is polar, this means that all the electrons are concentrated at one end and the molecule is partially negatively charged on that end, right? This negative end makes the surrounding molecules have an instantaneous dipole also, attracting the surrounding molecules' positive ends. Now, that process is known as the London dispersion force of attraction. Now, the ability of a molecule to become polar and displace electrons is known as that molecule's polarizability. The more electrons a molecule contains, the higher its ability to become polar. When the molecules become polar, the melting and boiling points are raised because it takes more heat and energy to break these bonds. Therefore, the greater the mass, more electrons present, and the more electrons present, yes, the higher the melting and boiling point of these substances, all things equal, holding equal. Now, London dispersion forces are stronger in those molecules that are not compact, such as a long hydrocarbon chain or indeed a complex lipid like shringomyelin, and also polymers like 
proteins and nucleic acids, including DNA and RNA. Now, this is because it's easier to displace the electrons since the forces of attraction between the electrons and the protons in the nucleus are effectively weaker. The more readily displacement of the electrons means the molecules also, by definition, since it's strict to, polarizable. Now, when the molecules become polar, the melting and boiling points are raised because it takes more heat and energy to break the bonds. Therefore, the greater the mass, the more electrons present, the more electron presence, again, the higher the melting and boiling point. Okay. So, dipole-dipole forces are similar to London dispersion forces, but they occur in molecules that are permanently polar as opposed to momentarily polar. Now, in that type of intermolecular interaction, a polar molecule, such as H2O, attracts the positive end of another polar molecule with its negative end of its dipole. The attraction between these two molecules is basically the dipole-dipole force. Now, all that chemistry is well and good, but it must be embedded in a biochemical environment. And this is necessarily going to include a discussion of metabolic pathways, cell ontogeny prior to the eukaryote. So, you see, glycolysis can provide energy without mitochondria. In this sense, oxidative phosphorylation is therefore contingent and by deduction not necessary for aerobic life. You see the way I think here. Now, in metaphysical terms, I did say we were going to an ontological discussion today, journey, I think I said. So in metaphysical terms, oxfos, oxidative phosphorylation, does not pass the principle of sufficient reason. That's called PSR for short, obviously. So yes, it is contingent. PSR wants to argue that for every phenomena, there will be a clearly defined explanation for its existence. But can we explain why oxidative phosphorylation exists when it is not necessary for the very purpose it achieves in the aerobic cell? We could argue that in order to generate the much larger concentration of ATP necessary for aerobic life, oxidative phosphorylation does sufficiently explain its reason for existence. More energy is required in a shorter time interval, you see, as long as there's plenty of molecular oxygen available to be reduced to water. Now, another argument is more basic, even than the efficiency of glucose oxidation. It's glycolysis, remember. Remember, glycolysis is going to generate a couple of ATPs without any oxidative phosphorylation going on, right? You know that. So molecular oxygen is, of course, a byproduct of oxygenic 
photosynthesis, which drives electrons to, pro to reduce NADP and for photophosphorylation via the splitting of H2O, this generating a flow of electrons and protons. So this net production of oxygen obtains also in the reduction of carbon dioxide to glucose. There is also some photorespiration, but I can talk about that later in the context of the binomial expansion of sufficient reason, which I suggest allows even mathematicians to understand the second law of thermodynamics. And no, I won't say I'm sorry for that statement. So what about that? Well, let's put this together, okay? A macro state of a system is specified by giving its macroscopic properties. What are those? Temperature, pressure, so on. A micro state of a system describes the position and the velocity of every particle. So for every macro state, there are one or more microstates. For every cell, there are multiple integrated molecular dynamic pathways. That is a statistical, now that's a state function, interpretation of entropy and indeed the second law of thermodynamics, at least in my opinion. Now, enthalpy is the amount of heat content used or released in a system at constant pressure. Enthalpy is usually expressed as the change in enthalpy. You know, so that's always delta H. The change in enthalpy is related to the change in internal energy. That's usually designated capital U. And a change in the volume, capital V, which is multiplied by the constant pressure of the system. Now, delta H equals Q at constant temperature. Thus, if we determine Q, Remember, Q equals Cm delta T, and I'll explain that in a minute, at constant pressure, then we'll have a value for delta H. Okay, so C is the specific heat, M is the mass, and delta T is the change, of course, in temperature. So the law of conservation of energy implies that the amount of energy lost from reacting chemicals is exactly the same as that gained by the surroundings. Thus, we are justified to say with that equation, we can now say that delta H equals Q. Okay, now remember, the definition of a change in entropy, which is designated capital S, when an amount of heat, capital Q, is added, is the following. Delta S equals Q divided by T. So this is basically another statement of the second law of thermodynamics. The total entropy of an isolated system never decreases. Okay? I know you're following along because I don't hear any questions. <laughs> also, how can one calculate the energy that is absorbed or released in a reaction? 
So energy change again is Cm delta T or Q equals Cm delta T. Okay. Again, remember C is the specific heat, M is the mass, and delta T is change in temperature. I'm not going to repeat that again. So enthalpy, symbolized again as capital H, is the total energy of a system, including its total kinetic and potential energy. So delta H is the change in enthalpy when reactants go to products. Delta H equals the enthalpy of products minus the enthalpy of reactants. Same as saying delta H equals enthalpy final minus enthalpy initial. Okay. And every time I said enthalpy, just put the capital H in there if you want to consider what the equation looks like. So delta H can either be positive or negative. A positive delta H indicates an endothermic reaction. And by that, I mean the enthalpy of the products is greater than the enthalpy of the reactants. Negative delta H indicates an axothermic reaction. That's where the enthalpy of the products is less than the enthalpy of the reactants. So here's a question. What happens to the enthalpy of a system in endothermic versus exothermic reactions? The answer, which I know you're ready to give me, is that Enthalpy increases in endothermic reactions. Enthalpy decreases in exothermic reactions. Now, what about biochemical reactions? Well, biochemical reactions, including that membrane-associated activity, will occur spo effectively, spontaneously, with conditions favor a negative delta H. Okay, so there are possible microstates here. You have a macrostate of having four H's, or that is H, 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 three H's and one T. Okay, so that can be H, 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 T, H, H, T, H, H, T, H, H, and T, H, H, H. That right there gave me four microstates. Now you can also do two H's and two T's. That will give you a different constellation of microstates. That'll give you a total of six. Then you're back to one H, three T's. That'll give you microstates with a number of four. And then finally four T, just four. I mean, just one, one microstate, okay? So that's what I mean, how many different microstates you can get just from manipulating the whole concept of what possible microstates can be in any given system, okay? So right away, you see how this can be geometrically expanded. Now, let's go back to something we're all familiar with, glycolysis. Well, if glycolysis is lost as well as oxidative phosphorylation, the question is, can the cell survive? Well, yes, indeed, without any way to generate ATP metabolically, it can be acquired via substrate-level phosphorylation, such as the diphosphokinases and the adenylate kinases. But that's merely a transfer, right? You know, net synthesis, 
yet it can act as a storage form of the phosphoryl group potential transfer, as in phosphocreatine storage in skeletal muscle, for example, in, in mammals, animals in general. And if these transferase reactions are also missing, the cell can rely on another element, sulfur metabolism for energy coupling. That's a really important area in biochemistry. Consider the tremendously significant thioester in lipid metabolism. Coenzyme A is, after all, a phosphopantothiene prosthetic group function. Now, you can also call that a microstate. So if sulfur metabolism is missing, okay, Let's keep on subtracting. We're doing almost a, a Cartesian reduction here, right? If sulfur metabolism is missing, you've got iron, you've got copper, manganese, zinc, and practically any other transition metal, as long as it can be in a biological system, because that's what we're trying to do with the ontology of biological system. It can serve as an electron sink. So this indeed is used, we're very familiar with, and the redox centers of the electron transport chain. But we do find absolutes in biology. And it is, if there are no carbon-based molecules, the cell no longer exists. So you need carbon, right? That's why we say that carbon is the one element necessary for biology. There's no si living system that does not have carbon. Okay, so that's so maybe we're at the end of maybe at the end of the worry about that, right? Okay, remember that we're trying to get into this whole concept, an understanding of what is necessary and what is not necessary to derive a living system. So when we do that, we're, we're basically dealing with what, what, is the, what is the principle of sufficient reason, okay? Remember, that's how we started this whole thing out, just asking very straightforward questions like that, okay? Let's go ahead and use a decent biochemical example for the statistical interpretation of entropy and the second law. Recall that pyruvic acid, okay, pyruvic acid, very important intermediate in the cell, right? Better check my time here. I hate having to do this. Eh, seven minutes. <laughs> I practically, if not, just, I mean, I can't say I just got started. Okay. What happens to pyruvate? What's possible fate? It could be transaminated to alanine, it's amino acid. It can be reduced to lactic acid, and it can be oxidatively decarboxylated acetyl-CoA, or carboxylated to oxaloacetic acid. So you have four states, depending on the bioequipoise of the cell, be it anabolic or catabolic, and the differential gene expression and allosteric modifications and nutrient intake and central nervous system HPA axis, hormonal influences, circulating lipoproteins, 
immune cell surveillance, cell fate, including the aflic limit, undivision, any of these microstates may occur without contradiction, thus not violating the first law of logic, the excluded middle term. You can't have A and not A at the same time and same space. Contrary, yes. Contradictory, no. This is all just a consultation of the simple square of opposition, which I've used often in lecture. Please go ahead and review that if you need to. Now, we can say that the second law does not forbid certain processes. All microstates are basically equally likely. However, some of them, this is where facticity comes in, some of them have an extraordinarily low probability of occurring. So a neuron expressing the gene for isocitrate lies. Or let's take another example. Some errant biochemist forgetting to add bar oil to his chainsaw. I mean, that's basically impossible, right? I mean, it, it's barely possible, but the odds would be absurdly remote, okay? Especially the errant biochemist in the bar oil and the chainsaw. Now, what if instead of four possible baits for pyruvate, there were a hundred of them, and each could occur equally. Well, analyzing the probability of that, in that instance, the possibility or probability of having pyruvate not being metabolized at all, because you have to take every one of those 100, right? You consider the probability of that event but not any of those events then, that would be finally about 7.9 times 10 to the minus 31st. So effectively, that is impossible, right? Because the amount of time it would take for all of those events to occur to finally get to that event where it was possible, you see? It's the way probability theory works. At least that's the way I read it. And I like to read it that way, so because it fits perfectly biochemical analysis and lots of other things in terms of uh, cellular phenomena, not just straightforward biochemical reactions and such. Okay, so I got a few more minutes here. What do I want to say? Okay, um, let's take this real quickly. Let me see if I can do this. This is really interesting, and we can finish with this. I think. Now we're going to stop. I was going to finish the, uh, this, this first lecture on this topic uh, by explaining to you why fatty acids cannot be converted into carbohydrate in animal cells. And it's very interesting because that is, now take the, take, take the um, principle of specific reason or sufficient reason, excuse me. That's why mammals, for example, one kind of animal, 
preferentially put on depot fat. You have a, you, right, you, you put on a fat layer as a source of carbon that can be called upon during fasting or starvation. Now, I say that's because of that, but wouldn't you then argue, well, doesn't that mean you should be able to convert that storage depot triacylglycerol in the adipose to glucose via gluconeogenesis in an organ like, say, the liver? Well, you can ask that question. But go back to the principle of sufficient reason. Is it necessary to do that? And if it's not necessary, then it's very likely, in fact, it, it's incontrovertibly impossible to be universal. It's not necessary, right? That would be a direct contradiction. Go back to the square of opposition or the middle term exclusion. So we're going to leave you with that, leave you poised to think about the, what we're going to do, how you can make carbohydrate out of fatty acid. There is a, there is a metabolic pathway that does that just fine. And it occurs in plants and in, my, in certain uh, microbial systems. And I'll just mention to you that what that pathway is, is the glyoxylate cycle. So next time we'll take up that um, intentional foray because, of course, it's going to involve lipid metabolism, which is where I'm basically always going in authentic biochemistry. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, authentic biochemistry podcast on this um, late morning, the 28th of January, 2023, saying bye for now. <laughs>